Well, Romans chapter 12. I'm just going to read verses 9 to 10 for us this afternoon. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Save the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Well, some of you might know that we planned a three-week series for Romans 12, and we've changed tack a little bit. We're actually going to extend out for another three weeks. So after this week, we're going to keep moving through Romans 12 together. What we've been finding is that just as we've begun to unpack it, that maybe the Lord is saying something specific to us as a church, and it's right just to stop and slow down and work through what he might be saying to us a little bit more slowly, a bit more deliberately. So if you're waiting for one John to come in the next few weeks, I'm sorry, but it's not going to happen. We might have to wait for next year or who knows, because we're already planned next year. But one John will come at some point. But we are going to just spend a little bit more time in Romans chapter 12, and particularly in these verses here, verse 9 down to 21. And you see really the, the summary statement for this part of Paul's letter to the church in Rome is found right at the end in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is the goal. As we get into this part of Romans chapter 12, which you'll see has been titled Marks of the True Christian, just ways and means that we can live out the Christian life that we've been brought into. The the summary statement that Paul really wants us to take is that God's people, children of the living God, those who are truly Christians, aren't those who engage in evil, but, but we actually seek to overcome evil with good. That is what we will do. That's what the church does. And we're going to see over the next three or four weeks different ways in which, in which we as Christians and we as a church can do that. Practical ways in which we can be a people who overcome evil with good and that was a timely command for the church in Rome for them to be a people who overcome evil with good that was a timely command for them because of the context of this letter so we've seen already a little bit of the theological context to Romans 12 haven't we we've seen a theological background we've seen how Paul starts off Romans 12 with with calling us to look back remember he says in view of God's mercy in light of what you see in God do And we see what God has done and who he is in Romans chapter 1 all the way through to Romans chapter 11. And we see that it is soaked and saturated in the mercy of God. It's soaked in the gospel. It's soaked in the truth and the reality that God has brought sinners to himself. And he has won sinners to himself through the finished work of the cross. Unworthy men and women and boys and girls who deserve the judgment of God because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God have been brought into the family of God through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who was perfectly innocent in every way. Through his broken body, we have been brought in, grafted in into this beautiful family. We don't belong to be here, but we are because of the mercy of God that has been afforded to us. And Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, look at that, remember that. Remember who God is. Remember what God has done. Remember who you now are in Christ. And in view of that, now offer your lives as a living sacrifice. 
And then he goes on to show us exactly what that is going to look like. And so we have the, the theological background for, for where we are in this chapter, but there is also a historical background for this letter. The Apostle Paul writes this letter, and he's writing to the church in Rome just under 2,000 years ago. And the, the church in Rome, well, well, Rome was the capital city of the Roman Empire. And at this time in history, the Roman Empire was opposed to the Christian church. Nero was the emperor as Paul was writing this letter to the church in Rome. And you might have heard something about Nero. He wasn't a very nice guy. In fact, he hated Christians. And at the time of writing, when the the church in Rome received this letter, Christianity was was kind of tolerated. Like it was accepted, but it, it wasn't welcomed by the Roman Empire. But just maybe five or six years later, after this letter is received, widespread persecution breaks out against the church. Christians become enemies of the state. They are tortured. They're executed. They're used for sport in the gladiatorial games. And so the people that Paul is writing to here, the Christians, the brothers and sisters, their experience of the Christian life, it's tough. It's difficult. They feel the pressure from the world around them, living in different ways, but also the pressure of the world around them, seeking for them to join them in them different ways of living and actually the temptation to join them was strong because the christian life was difficult like literally their lives were on the line for for submitting to jesus as their lord and their savior and this pressure around them this pressure to conform to the patterns of the world it was strong and folks that sounds a little bit like today doesn't it the world around us if you're a christian is trying to draw you into their way of thinking It's trying to conform you into their patterns, into their lifestyles, trying to draw you away from a life in Christ into a life in the world. But these verses, verses 9 to 21, teach us an important and powerful lesson. And the lesson that we're going to see over the next few weeks is this, is that the evil that you have suffered or might suffer and the evil that you see around you, it doesn't need to define you. It doesn't need to be powerful enough to snatch you away from a life in Christ. And over the next four weeks, we're going to see different aspects of the Christian life that do define us. We don't want to be defined by the wickedness and the evil that we see around us. We want to be defined by different things. And we're going to see different aspects of of those things that can define us. Different things of the good that we're to overcome evil with that we see in verse 21. Now, it's interesting, like Paul has a really clear view of what's going on in the world. There is evil in the world. There is wickedness and it's trying to snatch God's people away. And the command in verse 21 is don't be overcome with that, but but overcome that evil with good. Now, it's interesting if we were to to sit around and we we were to read that that context and understand that context of of the type of world that we're in. If we were to sit around and think, okay, Liberty Church, let's, let's build a strategy. Let's try and figure out, okay, how do we be a church who do verse 21? Who aren't overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What should we do? And we'd probably come up with things like this. Let's, let's call a prayer meeting. Let's get God's people together and pray. If you want to overcome evil with good, let's start with prayer. Let's get on our knees and let's pray. And then we might say, okay, well, let's, let's, let's train each other. Let's, let's build one another up theologically. Let's, let's make sure that we know God's word and sit under the authority of God's word. And we, can, and we can strengthen each other with God's word. And then we might say, let's raise up leaders. Let's equip men and women in the church to, to care for one another and protect one another and shepherd one another. 
And then we might say, do you know what? If we've got a vision for the city, if we want to see evil overcome with good, then let's plant healthy churches across this city. Like I think genuinely, I think that's probably what our strategy for overcoming evil with good would look like. That's interesting, isn't it? In verse 9, where does the Lord want us to start? The strategy for overcoming evil with good starts with this. Let love be genuine. Now those are all good things. And we should do those things. We should pray. We should train. We should sit under the authority of God's word. We should have a vision for planting churches. But it isn't the first thing that we read here. The first thing we read for overcoming evil with good is to love. To love one another. See, what we're going to see in our few verses, verses 9 to 12, is this, is that we overcome evil with genuine love. That's where our strategy begins. We overcome evil with genuine love. And it's interesting, Paul wouldn't have to tell us that unless there was a chance that we were going to experience a type of love in the world that wasn't genuine, right? Like, if that was just a given, that every type of love we experienced was genuine, then he wouldn't have to read that, uh, write that command. But the thing is that we face love and types of love every day that aren't genuine at all. That was true for the church in Rome. It's definitely true for us. In our culture, if you were to ask what genuine love looks like, you would typically hear this kind of response. Genuine looks, love looks like acceptance and affirmation. That's what it looks like to to feel loved. Like if I want to be loved in this world, you need to accept who I am and what I do and affirm who I am and what I do. And that is increasingly becoming the, 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 the tone and the culture within which we live. And that means I can do whatever I want and I can be whoever I want. Because your place, if you're going to love me as a human being, is to say, that's great. And it's not even just to say that, it's to affirm you, to celebrate who you say you are, to celebrate what it is that you do. And let me just say, that is absolutely fine. Like, I will clap you along all day and celebrate who you are all day and accept who you are and affirm you all day as long as who you are and what you do is morally good and perfect. That's the deal, okay? Except the problem is, none of us are. None of us are morally good and perfect. In fact, haven't we seen through Paul's letter, the natural state that we come into this world is anything but morally good and perfect. We're told that all of us have sinned and fallen far below the perfect, glorious standard of God. And Jesus himself would say, actually, we're not morally and good, perfect people. We are morally sick people in fact he would go further than that and say that we're spiritually dead that we're slaves under sin that's who we are and so for me to accept and affirm you in your spiritual sickness that's not love that's the opposite of love for me to accept and affirm you in your spiritual deadness in your slavery to sin for me to clap you along and say yeah go on you be whoever you you want to be you do whatever you want to do that's great for me to say that all the while you are dead and you are sick and you're separated from God that isn't love at all 
If we want to know what genuine love looks like, we need to look to the one who embodies genuine love, Jesus. And Jesus never accepted and affirmed the sick in their sickness. He never accepted and affirmed the spiritually dead in their deadness. Like he accepted them as they came to him, but he always sought to change them and transform. Come as you are, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna leave you like that. I'm gonna change you. I'm gonna transform you. I'm gonna make you spiritually alive. I'm gonna deal with your spiritual sickness. I'm gonna help you put your sin to death. I'm gonna suffer and die for your sin. Come as you are, but you are gonna be changed. That's genuine love. Jesus always sought to heal the sick, deal with their spiritual death. And he did it by sacrificing for them. That is genuine love, folks. And remember, sacrifice is the framework of this chapter. Remember that back in the first verse of chapter 12, that it is in view of what God has done for us, in view of his mercy, where to then offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And so the call now to let love be genuine, we need to see that in light of what we've already been told. Genuine love is going to be sacrificial. Like we see that in Jesus' life. And if we connect the dots with what Paul is saying in verse 1 and verse 9, if we're going to let our love be genuine, we should expect that it's going to be sacrificial. It's going to cost us someone. Genuine love will be sacrificial and In our few verses here, we see how it's going to play out in the life of our church. I love these verses. They're so practical. Like, it's great when we get to bits of the Bible like this, which just tell us, okay, go and do this. And this is what it will look like. And we get to one of those parts right now. Let love be genuine. And we get told exactly what it looks like for our love to be genuine. And firstly, it's this. Genuine love differentiates between good and evil. Genuine love differentiates between good and evil. And evil. Paul puts it like this in the second half of verse 9 abhor what is evil, hate, hate what is evil, and hold fast to what is good. Hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Paul is saying if you if you love something, if you hold fast to something that is good, then you will hate the thing that is going to try and destroy that good thing. Does that make sense? Like, think about our families. We're all part of families. We all have people that we love. And I love Elizabeth. I love my children. And if someone comes knocking on the door, wanting to hurt my family, well, I'm going to do something about it. I'm not just going to let them into the house and let them do whatever they want. I'm going to act against them. I'm not going to like that person in particular. And Paul is saying, if you love something and you hold fast to something that is good, then on, on, the, on the converse side of that, you will hate the thing that is trying to destroy that good thing. So if you love truth, you will hate lies. If you love mercy, you will hate injustice. If you love grace, you will hate greed. If you love Jesus, you will hate sin, the thing that killed him. Genuine love differentiates between good and evil. And by the way, note note what it says. It says, hate what is evil. Not hate who is evil. We don't hate people, folks. The Bible says that we wrestle against flesh and we wrestle not against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against humans. We don't wrestle against people. We wrestle against powers and principalities and spiritual forces that seek to take people captive. 
Now, there is a definite spiritual sense in which people who do evil things, if they aren't Christians, they are filled with evil. But we aren't called to take up a fight against them. Our rage should be directed against the evil one. We hate him. We've been training our kids to to say that in our GC. We're reading The Pilgrim's Progress together. Book by John Bunyan, hundreds of years old, but the kids are loving it. We just do a chapter every week. And each chapter they're introduced to a different character. It's a story, like a a kind of made-up story about this pilgrim Christian who's trying to find his way to heaven, trying to find his way to, to the king's palace. And on the way, he meets different people. And some of those people are helpful. Some of those people aren't so helpful. And they're getting senses that, that some of these people have been sent by God and some people are, are belonging to a kingdom of darkness. And there's soon to become, in a, a chapter in a few weeks' time, the character Apollyon, who is the, the character of Satan, the devil, the John Bunyan writes about Pilgrim's Progress. And each week we sit the kids down and we, we talk about these characters and we talk about Christian who's trying to make his way to the celestial city and all of these things that are trying to pull him away and drag him away and, 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 and distract him from a, a relationship with Jesus. And we've come to the conclusion that the enemy, Satan, the devil, is working against Christian. And the kids will say to us, I'll say, okay, what do we think of Satan? What do we think of the devil? And all together in unison they say, We hate the devil. And that's their mantra. We hate the devil. We hate Satan. And we teach them, you don't hate anyone else. I remember as kids, we used to say, oh, dad, I hate hate doing this, or I I hate doing that. No, no, we we don't hate people. We don't hate things necessarily. We hate the devil. With every fiber of our being, we hate the devil. We hate Satan. We hate the evil one. And I think we'd all be comfortable to say, yeah, 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 I do. I hate it. But what about the other aspects of evil that we let creep into our lives? And Jesus uses a really helpful illustration of, of our spiritual life. He says, you imagine your spiritual life is like a house. And there is a strong man, the devil, Satan, who is trying to get into your house. You heard that? You know when Jesus talks about that? And Jesus, Jesus tells his disciples and he's telling us to resist the devil. Like, keep that door closed. And I think we'd all agree, like none of us want Satan in our lives. And we'd, we'd all be people who would lock the front door and we'd barricade it shut and we'd put extra bolts top and bottom to make sure that Satan can't come in because we want to keep him out. But what about the back door? That we just leave slightly ajar and let other evil things come in. Or what about the bathroom window that we just leave on the latch? Ready for these different sins that we like to entertain to come in. And they come into our house and they sit on our couch. And this is all a metaphor, by the way. And they go in our fridge and they take our food and they get really comfortable in the house. And some of us saddle up next to them and sit with them as if they're our best friends. And they whisper nice things into our ears. And soon enough, those sins, those evil patterns of thinking and doing and saying, they become like part of the furniture. The reality is, we might be barricading the front door against Satan, but we need to keep watch on our whole life, folks. Those things may look harmless, but they want to destroy us. And genuine love differentiates between good and evil. It keeps watch sees what evil is and it hates it 
maybe this afternoon is a moment where you just need to open your eyes to that again and see what sins you might have let into your spiritual life. Those patterns, thoughts, words and deeds that you know are evil, you've let them sit on the couch. Genuine love sees them for what they are and removes them. Takes their key off them and says, you're not welcome here anymore. And that is genuine love, folks. Because our perfect saviour, Jesus, died the cruelest of deaths for those sins that we are entertaining. He was beaten and flogged and abused for those sins that were happy to sit on the couch. And so genuine love, if you really love our saviour, kicks them out. And says you're not coming back. Next, genuine love lifts other people up. Verse 10, we read this. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honour. Genuine love lifts other people up. And I just want to be clear, Paul is talking primarily about the body here, brothers and sisters, the church. And the first way that we lift other people up, he says it's with brotherly affection. Now, that's two words in our Bibles there. It's one word in the original language, and it's a beautiful word. Anyone, anyone like cream cheese in here? Any lovers? Yeah, yeah me and you, Beth, yeah, Jane. Well, you'll like this word. Philadelphia, it's called in the original language. It's a beautiful word. And it means like the, the affection, the type of affection that you only get in a, in a really close-knit family. Like a brotherly and sisterly or a fatherly or motherly type affection. And I know a lot of us in this room might have had difficult relationships with family members. But when a family functions well, that bond of love is deep and it's powerful, isn't it? Like if a member of my family is sick, I will bend over backwards to, to get them care. If a member of my family dies, I will shed tears for them that I won't shed in the same way as I would for other people. If one of my families threatened, then there is a natural instinct within me to defend them, to protect them, to, to care for them in ways that I wouldn't with others. Like if there's a need in my family, then there is a willingness for me to sacrifice for them no matter what the cost. I'll do whatever it takes. If there's a need, I will meet it because they're my family. And Paul is saying genuine love in the church looks like that. It goes that deep. It's a Philadelphia type of love. It's so rich. It's so strong. And in our body, in our Liberty Church body here, there are some specific hurts and pains right now in the midst of our family that brothers and sisters are experiencing. And remember the framework for chapter 12? It's sacrifice, right? It's cost. It's being willing to model that type of love that we just heard about. A love that, that, will, that will really just have a heart broken like it wouldn't break for anyone else. A type of love that would go the extra mile because these are our brothers and our sisters. A type of love that would defend fiercely our brothers and sisters because this is a deep bond that goes deeper. Even deeper than our biological family. We are united together by something stronger than physical blood, we are united together through the spiritual 
union that is brought together through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our bond goes deeper, folks. And for those that are hurting and carrying pains and struggles in this body at the moment, folks, genuine love looks like a deep affection towards them. That will cost, that will be sacrificial. (coughs) And then it looks like a deep honour. Genuine love loves other people up with brotherly affection and then with outdoing one another in showing honour, verse 10. And that outdoing one another suggests that it's not a competition, right? It's not like, oh, you know, they've, they've honoured pers- that person. I need to go and do a little bit more just so, you know, I get seen to be, to be the person who honours the most. That isn't the picture at all. The picture here is that we would prefer to honour rather than be honoured. That's what, that's what the Lord wants us to do and to be, to be a people who prefer to honour rather than to be a people who are honoured. And let me tell you, that type of culture, if we embody that at Liberty Church, that will shine bright in a world of attack and dishonour. That's the reality. Like you just spend a few minutes on social media. It's the reason I came off Twitter. Because that is all you hear. People attacking each other and trying to tear strips of each other and, and trying to malign people and trying to discredit and dishonour one another. And it's not just on Twitter. Like We see it all around us. Like Think about how... How this whole situation with Philip Schofield has played out over these last few weeks. A cycle of blame and shame. Blaming the media for, for kind of whipping up this, this, uh, this witch hunt uh, against them. People blaming his family, him blaming the culture, you know, him, him saying, you know, this is just all landing on me because, because it's, it's a homophobic attack. A cycle of blame and shame, attacks of dishonour. Folks, the church is the antithesis of that kind of culture. And it's not that we don't point out sin where we see it. We do. We speak the truth and love to one another, right? It's not that we pretend that everything's okay and we just brush it under the carpet. That's not what we're saying. We, we, we get alongside each other and when we see each other stumbling and sinning, we put an arm around that brother and sister and say there's a better way. But we also are a people who lift one another up in honour. We honour each other. And in a world that tears one another down, that, that kind of culture will shine bright. We're called to be a people who prefer to honour others rather than be honoured. And I want to just celebrate, like there is a sense of that in liberty. I was standing just before we started church a few weeks ago and one of the, the ladies came up to another one of the ladies in, in church and she had a bag just full of goodies and she gave this to other lady and and that lady said what's this for like and she said i just want to bless you i just want to honor you i haven't got a particular reason like you know i just love you and she gave and i was kind of earwigging i do that by the way folks i'm always listening and and the other woman was really overwhelmed and and it was a really powerful moment of this genuine love building up a sister honoring them giving thanks for there are some marriages in here which, which really encourage me and just show a genuine love. I'm sorry Mike's not here, Jane, because I wanted to honour you two. Like, you two teach me so much in just your love for one another and your care for one another. I love that. And how Mike honours you. Jane's been a bit poorly this week and Mike has rung me a few times and asked, would I pray for Jane? 
He's really worried about it. And there was just a beautiful moment of a husband honouring his wife. And I want to honour you both. I'm grateful for you. And we love you, Jane. And we love Mike. And you can let him know that. There are ways and examples that we can celebrate, folks. But I also want to say, I think we need to grow in this. I think as a church family, we need to grow in a culture of honouring each other. And all of us carry a bit of a crutch that, that doesn't help us. And that crutch is British culture. <laughs> British culture just is one of those cultures that it doesn't find us comfortable either showing on it or receiving on it. Oh, I feel a bit awkward. Like, no, forget about that. Like the Bible says, I'll do one another in showing on it. So it must be right. It must be good. That British culture, actually, it's not even that it doesn't honour, it's often that it, it defaults to being critical. Doesn't it? Like actually, instead of seeing the good things that people might do, or instead of going out of our way to celebrate someone, we're, we're drawn towards their faults. We're drawn towards their failures. We're drawn towards their mistakes. And that, that kind of critical observation over honouring observation, that can easily bleed into the church, and it shouldn't. There is no room for that kind of critical spirit in, in church. Yes, we get alongside each other when we see each other's sin. But that type of critical spirit that seeks to just sow seeds of division, it doesn't belong here. It's not welcome. And it shouldn't be here because of how, because of how the Father engages with us. Like just think in the Bible, like particularly in the Psalms. Like think of how we read of how the Father engages towards his children. Our Heavenly Father, who by the way knows all and sees all. He knows all of our sins, past, present, and future. He knows all of our failures. Like if anyone had the right to be critical, it's him. And yet how often in the Psalms do we see the father engage with his children like this? I am going to lift you up. I'm going to bring you under the shadow of my wing. I love you. I delight in you. And think about how he deals with our shame. How he sends his son, the perfect Lord Jesus, to die on the cross in our place to deal with our shame. Our shame. It's our shame for our sin, yet Jesus dies in our place for it. And isn't it that our shame is just taken away? We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So now we have a place, a default place of honour with the Father. Like when he looks at us, he's not ashamed of us. Doesn't Jesus even say himself in Hebrews chapter 2, you know, you know these people? I'm not ashamed to call them my brothers and sisters. Wow. Isn't that amazing? In light of how we know we have lived this week, Jesus would say in the heavenly places, I love these people. I want to honor them. I'm not ashamed of them. And that is the image that we are growing into, folks. An image that honors one another. So can I encourage you, Seek to grow in genuine love by honouring one another. Take time this week, like practically. Don't just hear that as, okay, I'm going to try and do that. Practically, do that. Like take time to tell someone how much you appreciate them. Like instead of defaulting to, oh, they did that again. Or, oh, did you, you know, on the way home from church, or oh, did you see how that person, or did you hear what, you know what, instead of doing that on the way home, why didn't you try and just find an evidence of grace in someone's life and sell it? Because they're there. 
There are evidences of grace in every believer's life. So make much of those things rather than making much of their weaknesses. Default to speaking well of others, folks, rather than speaking critically. And lastly, genuine love. Genuine love is sustained by patient joy and hope, fueled by constant prayer. Let me read verse 11 to us again. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Paul says, don't be slothful. Or, well, that kind of means lacking energy or, or being half-hearted. Like, we're all thinking of the same thing here, right? Sloth. Neil the sloth. Anyone, anyone know that? Sloths, right? They're slow. They're like, come on, just put a bit of effort into it. Like, they're just so like... No, Paul is saying, don't, don't lack energy. Don't be half-hearted, but be fervent in spirit or literally be on the boil. <laughs> That's literally what it means. Don't lack energy, but be on the boil. Keep up your spiritual temperature. That's what Paul's saying. Now, why would he say it here? Why does he encourage us to keep up our spiritual temperature at this point in this list of commands? Well, what's he told us? Genuine love hates what is evil, holds fast to what is good. Genuine love lifts each other up with a, a deep brotherly affection and a countercultural type of honour. And that type of love, that type of love is sacrificial. It's going to cost us, but it's also going to be in a context of tribulation. You see that in verse 12? Be patient in tribulation. And tribulation means, means an external pressure that's pushing against us. Paul is saying that is your context. Do all these things, show a genuine love towards one another, but, but know that you're going to do that within, within a culture that is pressing against you, that is pushing against you, that doesn't want you to love in these ways. And so genuine love, we need to know, is going to be hard. And there is going to be a temptation to become half-hearted because it's going to cost us, because it's going to be sacrificial because of that external pressure that is pushing against us, trying to draw us away from genuine love and trying to draw us into the world. It's going to be hard. And the temptation will be to become slothful, to become half-hearted, to think the sacrifice and the cost, you know what, this just feels too much. That's just too much for me. I'm going to back off a bit. I'm going to turn down the temperature. And Paul says, if that's what you're going to do, you're going to become lethargic. You're going to go off the boil. Actually, Jesus warned that that would happen in Matthew 24. He warned that in the last days, many would go cold. (coughs) And he writes a letter in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16, to the church in Laodicea, and he warns them not to become lukewarm warm it's the same sort of picture don't go cold don't let the temperature drop don't allow the pressure of the world to 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 make you cold to to draw you away from being someone who loves genuinely see unless heat is applied the natural process is for something to go cold like, you know when you're eating your dinner someone knocks at the door or rings the bell and you go down to the door and it's an, Never like a two-minute conversation, is it? So you're standing at the door having the five-minute conversation, ten-minute conversation. And you go back to your roast dinner, and what's happened to your roasties? They've gone cold. That's the natural process. If you leave something on its own, it's going to go cold. And so what do you do? You pop it in the microwave and warm it up again. 
how do we apply heat? If we feel like the temperature has dropped, if we feel like we're struggling to, to, to love in these genuine ways that we're encouraged to hear, how do we apply the heat? Well, verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope. What does that mean? Well, all the way through God's word, we're told where hope in this world is to be found. And it's not found in ourselves. It's not found in our work. It's not found in stuff. It's not found in other people. Where is our hope found? In Jesus. It's found in the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those things will be gone one day. All of those things will fail us. And all the way through scripture, we're told, put your hope in Jesus. Put your hope in Christ alone, the eternal son of God who suffered for us and has gone ahead to prepare a place for us. Put your hope in him. Look forward to that day when you will be with him. Put your hope in those things which are sure and steadfast. Paul is saying, put your hope in Jesus. And as you do, rejoice. Rejoice in hope. Rejoice in Jesus. When we feel the pressure of the world around us, pushing in, trying to turn the temperature down, trying to stop us from being people who love genuinely, Paul is saying, look beyond the darkness of this world, look beyond the struggle and look to Jesus. Remember who he is. Do the Romans 12, one move. Fill your gaze with the mercies of God. Remember what he has done for you. Remember who you are in Christ and rejoice. It's hard not to. When you think about Jesus and you think about who he is and what he's done, it's hard not to rejoice. It's hard not for your heart to be, to be filled with a, a genuine joy. Rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. See, as you look to Jesus and find joy in him, that will help you to be patient in this pressure cooker of the world. The heart that is set on Christ has an eternal perspective. And that isn't broken by present pain and trouble, but it is lifted with joy in Christ Jesus. The heart that is set on Jesus is able to endure without being discouraged. It's able not to be discouraged as we continue to struggle with sin. It's able not to be discouraged as we honour that person and go out of our way to honour that person and then we receive no gratitude. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and finally be constant in prayer. This type of love, a love that hates what is evil and holds fast to what is good, a love that that has a deep brotherly affection for one another and and a deep honour for one another, that type of love, genuine love, folks, it's impossible without the help of the Spirit. We just can't do it. Like we We haven't got that power within us to love like that and so we pray we ask the spirit to do what we cannot do we pray we ask him to help us to love like jesus we ask him to help us to discern evil from good to keep that back door shut as well as the front door we ask him to help us to move forward towards one another with a deep affection we ask him to help us to show a counter-cultural honor to one another We cannot do this on our own. So be constant in prayer. And you know the beautiful thing about being people who are constant in prayer? When we come to the Father and we ask, and then we receive what what we've asked for, he gets all the glory. 
When we come to the Father and say, Father, I'm done with this sin. I'm done with it. I want to shut that door and keep it away. And when he deals with that sin, he gets all the glory. When we come to our Father and say, Father, I'm, you know, I'm struggling. I want to love this brother like genuinely. I really want to love them. I want to love them like, like in a deeper way than I even love my brother. But I'm just struggling because they're hard to love. And then when he enables you to love them, he gets all the glory. And when you're struggling to, to honor someone else, to outdo one another in honor, to prefer to honor rather than to be honored, when you're able to do that out of a genuine heart of love for Jesus and love for that person, when you're able to do that and you've come to the Father and you've prayed and he's enabled you to do that, he gets all the glory, not you. When we show genuine love that is costly and sacrificial, he gets all the glory because it's his character that we are displaying. When we honour a brother and sister, he gets all the glory because it's his character that we are showing to them. In John 13, 34, Jesus is teaching his disciples about this genuine type of love. And he says, I'm going to give you a new command. A new commandment I give you, love one another. And he helps them to understand what that love is going to look like by what he says next. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I've loved you. So love one another. And then he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. We overcome evil with genuine love. And as we engage in that love, God gets all the glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we want to be a people who receive your commands and walk well in them. And we thank you that, that we know what love is because of the love that you've shown to us. And so we thank you. Thank you for your son. We thank you for the height and the depth and the breadth of the love that you've shown us in sending your son who lived for us, died for us and rose again. Thank you that you overcame evil with good through the cross of Jesus. And as he has loved us, we want to love those around us. And so we ask for your help. Help us to hate what is evil and to love what is good. Help us this week and Holy Spirit, we pray that even, even now as we, as we respond to your word, that you would identify those particular sins that have crept in the back door. Those patterns of thinking, those thoughts, those motives, those deeds that we are engaging in and, and we've, we've created a place of comfort for them in our lives. Holy Spirit, Shine light on those things even now as we pray and help us to place them on the altar. Help us to move towards one another with a deep sacrificial love. Help us to resist the the default urge to, to be critical, to point out failings, to point out one another's faults. Help us instead to default to honoring this week. To honour each other in ways that would, that would shine bright in a world that just seeks to tear each other down.
So, Father, we're able to do that because of the love that you've poured into our hearts. And so we pray that as we engage in those ways this week, that you would get all the glory, that you would be honoured, that more of the people around us would see a, a supernatural type love that doesn't come from us. And as they see it, they would be drawn to your son. And we ask these things in his name and for his glory.